0: Yo, 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 welcome everyone to the sixth episode of the Tough Get Going Podcast. My name is George Gogus, self-described tough guy and mental health clinician who's putting those two things together to bring this show to you. The reason that I'm bringing this show to you is I'm here to say you can be strong, you could be tough, but you could still take care of yourself in the right way. So today's episode is full of interesting facts, people, and information. So today we're going to take a tough look at social anxiety something that's super relevant during a pandemic where we're all being told stay away from each other stay away from each other we're also joined by Anna Gopian who comes here to talk about her tough journey of recovery and the agency tricircle she started which takes a more comprehensive approach to treating addiction and we also have a further discussion about communication skills which gets more in depth on the art of communication plus we have our other familiar segments on this show Just a couple notes before we get started, the Tough Get Going podcast is now on Instagram, so check out and follow our page for tough quotes, cool pictures, show updates, and much more. And also, before we begin, the Tough Get Going podcast is not intended to treat mental health issues. This show is intended to offer tips and suggestions, interesting interviews, fun facts, and dry humor. If you're struggling with your mental health, you should seek out help for yourself by going to Psychology Today or Googling therapists near me. If this is a mental health emergency, call 911, visit your local emergency room, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. So I appreciate everyone for joining us on today's tough journey. Keep listening to the show. Now let's get going. Okay everyone, so we're going to jump right into my favorite segment of this show, Manly Acts of Kindness, where we're showing everyone you can be manly, you could be tough, but you can still be kind. So on this episode, we're going to focus on none other than Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. So I'll be honest people, I have some sort of obsession with Shaq. Maybe it's because I'm tall and he's tall. Maybe it's because I watched his Cribs episode where he had that monstrous Superman styled bed. But I think it's just because he's taller than me and I'm always fascinated by that. And, you know, on a side note, I'm also obsessed with Sasquatch because maybe the same reason. I don't know. I can't really explain it. And I'll be honest, people, I go hiking a lot and sometimes I'm out there in the woods and I pick up a stick and I start knocking on a tree just hoping, just hoping that a Sasquatch will knock back. I haven't got there yet, but they're very elusive creatures, so hopefully I will someday. The closest was when i was hiking in new hampshire and probably the most rural place that i was at it was actually called not the best name but pisgah state park p-i-s-g-a-h but it was a beautiful remote place all right so what are we talking about here oh yeah we're getting back to shack so you might be asking why are you featuring shack on this episode or this segment well there's really only one reason why i'm mentioning him in this segment It's because he was kind enough to make that movie called Kazam, where he played a genie. Some genie that apparently came there to save this kid from his own evil father. I'm sure everyone remembers if you saw that movie, The Swimming Pool Full of Candy, which as a kid was just a total mind blower. Actually, I'm just kidding, everyone. I'm just kidding. That was a great movie. Cheesy, but great. But that's not why I'm mentioning Shaq right here. Actually, Shaq is a very charitable person. He's donated a lot of money and raised a lot of money for different charities. Uh, Shaq has raised millions of dollars for charity. And he actually donated $1 million to the Boys and Girls Club recently. Now, when I was in college and undergrad, I actually did an internship or volunteer work at the Boys and Girls Club. And I realized how important that program is for the youth of today. It gives them a safe place to go after school. They do positive activities and can kind of just hang out and be social with each other so as i said Shaq has raised millions of dollars for charity he's actually on the national board of directors for communities in schools so Shaq is always doing things for kids in school which is really the main reason why i'm mentioning him here so in 2019 he started the shaquille o'neal foundation makes sense that he named it that The Shaq Foundation focuses on school athletic programs. So he's actually got them equipment and different things, helped schools who needed funding to keep their after-school sports activities going. Um, He's also given away a lot of things to school. In 2019, in both Los Angeles and Las Vegas, Shaq gave over 5,000 kids school supplies. 5,000. In total, he gave away... 250,000 school supplies to schools in those two communities for kids who really needed it. He has a program called Wait For It, it's the best name ever. Shaka Claus great name great name every year he gives tens of thousands of toys clothes and food to kids who really need it now recently I saw something online that Shaq was in a jewelry store and someone was in there buying an engagement ring for their fiance or hope to be fiance and Shaq actually paid for it which don't make me get into the whole diamond industry and marketing and taking out loans and going into debt to get an engagement ring because that will save that For another time, I shouldn't have said that now Jared Jeweler is gonna send out a hitman to come get me. But that was a really kind gesture of Shaq, and he didn't have to do that. Again, we thank you, Shaq. We thank you for being the biggest hearted big man out there, looking out for our kids, making cheesy and awesome movies, and just being you, Shaq. So thanks for what you're doing, and please keep doing it. You're showing everyone that you can be manly, you could be tough, you could be huge, but you could still be kind okay everyone so we're going to get into our in-depth topic of this episode so for the purpose of this episode i decided to pick a topic that was relevant to current times and something that was relatable to a lot of people so this current pandemic where we're being told to stay away from each other and to isolate and to be six feet apart certainly increased this issue but i would go as far as saying that in the current air quotes, internet error that we live in, these skills aren't coming as easily to some people these days so the topic that I'm talking about today is social anxiety or social phobia so it's good to be clear that this is more than just being shy or nervous when for example doing public speaking or a presentation this is an extreme fear of social situations especially ones that are unfamiliar see when this becomes a really big issue is when these fears or these anxieties become so bad that it interferes with the quality of your life you can avoid going to events you can avoid avoid meeting new people, and you can just really start isolating more. So there are a lot of emotions that are going on under the surface or under the top of your iceberg if you get that reference from a prior episode. So some of the common emotions that are going on is the fear of being rejected, the fear of being scrutinized, being judged, or just being embarrassed in public. And you know, again, I just want to reiterate that the key here is that these are usually irrational or exaggerated. exaggerated fears that you have an example of that is you know maybe I'm telling myself if I walk up to this person and say hello They're gonna be like get the f away from me. Go away, which you know honestly could happen, but most likely it's not gonna happen So let's talk a little bit about what causes or what triggers social anxiety. So one of the main ones is meeting new people, right? A whole lot of uncertainty in that. Also making air quotes small talk, which they call it small talk, but for with people with social anxiety, I think we can call that big talk or get away from me talk. Uh, Public speaking, of course, you know, all eyes on you being the center of attention, performing somewhere you know, a school player, whatever. Yeah, I don't know why I gave that as an example. Other things are just going to parties or any sort of event where there's large groups of people, which makes sense, right? Now, let's get into some of the signs and symptoms of social anxiety. Now, before we get into detail, I think it's important to say that, you know, in certain situations, people get nervous, right? Like public speaking or giving presentations. I'll admit that even I get nervous before doing presentations and I'm nervous for a few minutes while I'm actually doing it, but I'm able to kind of find my flow and bounce back. I think the issue with social anxiety is people who experience it, they can't do that. They are just freaking out the whole time so the symptoms of social anxiety can be broken down into three main categories there's emotional symptoms there's physical signs and then there's behavioral symptoms or signs focusing on emotional you know some of the common ones are always being self-conscious or anxious in any social situations and this one's a key here intense worry or stress about upcoming social situations they may be days weeks or even months ahead of time But you're still thinking about it and just having that feeling of dread or freaking out that you might have to do this next month. That's definitely a good indicator that something's going on here as far as social anxiety. So other emotional signs, as I mentioned earlier, the fear of being judged or watched by others. The fear that you'll do something in public which will lead to humiliation. And another one is the fear that other people know that you're anxious. I mean, they could know that you're anxious because some people have telltale signs, their posture, their facial expressions, but really, anxiety is not as noticeable as you think, especially because a lot of other people are anxious too, and they're not really focused on your anxiety. A lot of times, they're focused on their own. So, the physical signs or symptoms of social anxiety are similar to the ones of just plain old anxiety. You know getting red faced or blushing having shortness of breath which we're going to get into your breathing a little more later on in this segment nausea shaking racing heart sweating dizziness as i said all those common anxiety signs so some of the main behavioral symptoms of social anxiety can be avoiding social situations and as i mentioned avoiding situations to the point where it can disrupt or affect the quality of your life you know like not going to work events or skipping your fantasy football draft even oh boy hiding in the background when you're at a social situation Or peeking around the corner or something like that, trying not to make waves. Um, Always needing a friend with you for every situation, which yeah, let's be honest, it's weird going out somewhere by yourself, especially if it's like a restaurant or a club or something like that. But there are times where you have to be alone and you have to learn how to interact solo with people. Now, I'm not saying to go out fist pumping by yourself, but I think you all are picking up what I'm putting down over here. And another behavioral sign or symptom can be needing alcohol or other drugs to be social, which I'm sure people can understand. If you're using alcohol to be social, that can get out of hand and become an issue in itself. And some people I've talked to or worked with, you know, they want to drink to be more social, but they end up getting so drunk, they're making more of a fool of themselves and kind of pushing people away and if you're relying on a substance to give you something whether it's social skills or how to cope with stress or whatever well if you take away that substance you have nothing so you have to learn the real skills of how to deal with things people plus that can lead to dependence of a substance. If you want to learn more about this and you haven't checked out episode 3, check it out where I'm joined by Ian, a local professional counselor, who joins us for a tough talk on substance use and addiction. Okay, so now let's get into quick tips or suggestions on how to deal with social anxiety. So. I know people, I've said it once, I'm going to say it again, get a therapist. They can be really helpful for you to help manage these symptoms and learn new techniques and skills to, you know, help your social anxiety. So other than that, you know, you have to challenge your negative or rational thoughts that you're having. For example, you feel like everyone's going to be laughing at you when you walk in the room or you do walk in the room and someone snickers and you're like, that's about me. It's not always about you. So you got to challenge those negative thoughts about yourself and how other people perceive you. I get more in depth about challenging your negative thoughts in prior episodes. So check them out if you haven't already because it's interesting and helpful stuff. All right. So some other tips of how to manage your social anxiety. Focus on other people, not yourself. If you're hyper focused on yourself, you're going to be focusing on your anxiety. Don't screw this up or don't say this or don't do that. And that could actually lead you to saying those things and acting a fool. So focus on other people when you're out. Really listen to what people are saying. Even if that means repeating the things that they're saying internally or paraphrasing out loud what they're saying. Just kind of start off by focusing on other people instead of anxiously going over what you're going to respond to them in your head you can focus on them and take a little pressure off yourself this is also a good general tip on how to be a better communicator or listener one good technique that i suggest to people who want to be more social is to ask open-ended questions so you don't want to give people an easy way out or an easy answer to your questions so here's an example say you met someone and said do you like football no. Oh, okay. Um, an open-ended question in that example would be, what sports do you like? It doesn't give them the opportunity to say yes or no, and then you can build off of the response with other open-ended questions. What sports do you like? Oh, I like football. Oh yeah, who's your favorite team? Oh, I like the Patriots. Oh really, what'd you think of the game last week? Or how do you feel after they did Tom Brady so dirty? Or how do you feel after Tom Brady went to the Buccaneers and won the Super Bowl? Huh? Huh? Sorry people, it's still a very sore subject for me. I think you can all see where I'm going with this. This not only helps you be more social, it helps you be more fluent and a better communicator. Alright, so the next tip or suggestion I'm going to talk about is learn to control your breathing. So short shallow breathing which is usually the breathing that you have when you're anxious or stressed or angry, it's associated with that flight or fight response, right? So the flight or fight response means there's danger, there's danger. So a lot of times you can get more amped up if your breathing changes. So it's important to kind of focus on your breathing. They say that breathing too fast or hyperventilating, it actually throws off the carbon oxygen balance in your body and it can cause symptoms like dizziness, feeling suffocated, Increased heart rate and muscle tension. So, I'm going to kind of mention a quick breathing technique right now. So, this breathing technique I like to call the 424 method. So, it's really simple, and deep breathing is always done in through your nose, hold for a couple seconds, and out through your mouth. So, the 424, you'd breathe in for four seconds hold for two and exhale for four they call it rhythmic breathing so do it nice and slow it can really help you calm down and there's tons of different breathing techniques that you can look up that all help kind of manage different emotions or experiences okay so the next suggestion i'm going to give is to face your fears you know push yourself a little bit the best way to get over things is through as they say Well, I think they say that, if not, I'm saying that. And again, I'm gonna say it, I'm a broken record here, but try to work with a therapist to do this because it can bring up a lot of uncomfortable feelings. But the key here is not to push yourself too far, go slow. In a lot of situations, people avoid those uncomfortable social interactions, which temporarily in the short term makes you feel better, right? But long term, it's not gonna help you and can even make your social anxiety worse. So again, you have to Go slow. Don't go too fast or you'll just freak out and stop doing it. So, if you never go out anywhere and you're always in the house, start off by just going somewhere and being around people. Even if you don't interact or talk to them, go to the mall and just walk around. Get a delicious smoothie or a pretzel or something. But just be in the presence of people and that can help. The first thing you can do is smile at people. Pre mask, of course. But smile and nod, right? The next person that you pass by, Smile, nod, and say hello. The next person that you see, smile, nod, and say, hey, how's it going? And then kind of work your way up. Maybe the next person you say, hey, do you know where the Verizon store is? I'm looking to pay a ton of money every month for my cell phone bill. Just kidding, not really. And even if they don't, say thank you, and that's it. Remember, you can always walk away if you're uncomfortable. No one's going to chase you and say, hey, why'd you ask me where that Verizon store is? I mean, like I said, they could, but let's get real here, people. In episode four, my guest Eddie talked a little bit about this technique, which some people call flooding, some people call desensitization. But as I said, it's slowly kind of working your way up to facing your fears. And then you realize, oh, I'm not made of glass. This person didn't know where the Verizon store was or gave me a rude look. But I'm still here. I'm still all right. And I just saved myself a ton of money a month for my cell phone bill. But moving along so another good way to kind of work your way up to being more social is do some volunteer work or go on meetup which i've mentioned before what i like about that is you're going to events and there's a common interest involved say you're going to the humane society to help clean the area for the animals well usually people going there are animal lovers so you can strike up a conversation using those open-ended questions related to animals hey what kind of pets do you have or want what do you think about the cat man of aleppo check out my earlier episode if 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 you didn't catch that manly act of kindness. So speaking more about common interests, I actually was working with an adolescent client recently who has social anxiety and wants to be more social at school. So I talked about what his interests are. You know, one thing that he likes is anime. There's actually other kids in class talking about his show. So I said, hey, in the future, that's a good opportunity to kind of pop in and say, hey, I saw that episode or I like this about it, right? It just gets you into that mind frame. And when you have a common interest, it takes a little of the pressure off. Okay, so... Another suggestion that I have is do things that overall reduce your anxiety. So the idea is if you have a less anxious life, most likely your social anxiety will also be reduced. So some of these things that you can do is limit your caffeine intake. I try to practice what I preach on that, but I do like my coffee. Sometimes I work long days. Exercise, you know, that burns off some of that energy. Limit your alcohol consumption. Get good sleep. And as I said, always try to work with a therapist. Someone can help you through this process. You don't have to go at it alone. And sometimes just talking to a therapist helps you get more in a social mode or more of a talkative mode. Okay, so just a quick recap before we end this segment. We talked about what social anxiety or social phobia is. We talked about some of the underlying emotions that are involved, what causes or triggers social anxiety, what the symptoms are, the emotional, physical, and behavioral, and we talked about how we can help challenge your negative thoughts, focus more on other people rather than yourself, learn to control your breathing, slowly face your fears, volunteer or do an event with people that have similar interests as you, and lastly, do things that will overall help reduce your anxiety cut out the caffeine, exercise, sleep, and as always, work with a therapist because they can be very helpful in this process. All right, everyone, I hope that was somewhat helpful information. I appreciate you joining me for this segment on social. Social anxiety or social phobia? Alright everyone, now we're going to get into our WTF mental health moment. What the... Okay, so for the purpose of this segment, we're going to focus on one of the most horrifying treatments ever devised for mental health issues. A lobotomy. Oh boy. So it's been about 85 years since the first lobotomy was performed in the U.S. At one point, an American psychiatrist was quoted describing a lobotomy as putting in a brain needle and stirring the works. Um, I'm glad that guy wasn't my psychiatrist because not a great description there. But anyways, lobotomy instruments are some of the most rudimentary and horrifying devices. They consist of 8 centimeter spikes attached to wooden handles. That's it. A spike and a handle. Solving your problem. Lobotomies actually came from a Portuguese neurologist named Igas Moniz, who believed that patients' obsessive behavior was related to suffering from, air quotes, fixed circuits in the brain. So in 1935 in a Lisbon hospital, he claims he solved this issue, stating, I decided to sever the connecting fibers of the neurons in activity. Great solution. Literally, the procedure of performing a lobotomy was to drill two holes in somebody's head. We talked about trephination, which is similar, but they just drilled holes to let the spirits escape. But in lobotomies, they drilled two holes in the skull and stuck these spikes into it and swept it side to side to cut the connections between the frontal lobes and the rest of the brain. Gruesome, gruesome. So, Moniz reported improvements in his first 20 patients that was a sample size 20 patients i guess it was back in the day so it makes sense so once he reported these findings it actually spread all over the world at the height of the lobotomy craze and the uk that were performing a thousand a year moniz was actually thought to perform up to three thousand lobotomies in his career three thousand the idea behind performing lobotomies is the alternatives to this treatment were worse meaning the alternatives were putting people in bedlam hospital listen to my previous episode and like putting them in straitjackets or chains or just kind of beating them so they figured this was a good alternative in 1949 moniz actually won the nobel prize for lobotomies but soon after in the 50s they realized they realized the outcome wasn't worth the side effects also another thing that caused lobotomies to stop being performed is the introduction of certain psychiatric meds that were used to treat certain mental health disorders like schizophrenia schizophrenia, bipolar... And other things so this is a quite a horrifying moment and I have a personal story about lobotomies when I was in grad school I was in one of those classes I don't know if anyone has ever taken them but they were like on a Saturday from literally like 8 to 4 30 or something like an 8 hour class so during this class we were there all day so we used to eat lunch during it and they were actually playing an old video of someone doing a lobotomy and I was the only one sitting there eating a tuna fish sandwich while watching it everyone looked at me like I was was, you know, a little off, but I guess it just didn't phase me. Maybe that's from my time in the military. But yeah, the focus of this WTF mental health moment was lobotomies. So thanks for listening to this WTF mental health moment. What the... Okay everyone, so now we're going to get into our interview of this episode. So in the last episode, I titled it our bounce back episode and I wanted to go with that positive energy and keep it going. So today in the Tough Get Going studio, I have someone who is definitely a bounce back story and a story of success. So today in the studio, we have Anna Gopian. Anna, welcome to the studio today.
1: Thanks George, it's great to be here.
0: I'm really happy that you came to join us and I'm excited to share your story with the Tough Get Going listeners. Anna is somebody who has an agency called TriCircle Incorporated? She's gonna get more into detail about explaining about what that agency does a little later in this interview. But I actually met Anna at an event in Wolkit, Connecticut, where my private practice is called One Clean Day of Fun, which was facilitated by an agency called Crossroads. We actually, our booths were next to each other, right, Anna? Yep, that's it. And we began to get talking a little bit and got, you know, to know each other, and we decided maybe we'll try working together. So I actually ran support groups for her, which she's going to talk more about those support groups a little later in this interview as well. So as I said, Anna is a great example of someone who bounced back and turned her story into a successful business. So Anna, can you tell us a little bit about your process of recovery, of course, as comfortable as you are sharing?
1: Absolutely. It's an honor and a privilege to have something to offer to the conversation, which in my hope is to stimulate hope right? So Tricircle Incorporated has many different, you know, facets to its title. And I, you want it more on myself than the organization right now. So on Agopian, I'm sitting here as a 57 year old woman and July 13th, 1995 is my recovery date where I personally found recovery at the age of 32. And it was a definite... Uh, interesting journey when it comes to how I made it to a place of surrender and, and what worked for me. I still don't remember the day that I came home from a club national in California motorcycle thing. I remember the work it took to get into treatment and I stayed in treatment and then had to fight for a continuum of care for myself. So I will be forever grateful for the people that were around me when I chose to stop using substances and really looking at what I call the story before the story.
0: So getting more into the story before the story... Was there any specific events or things that happened in your life that made you decide now's the time to recover? Now's the time to kind of start taking back my life?
1: Yeah, and it became more revealed to me over time, right? So the substances, I'll say this, were not the problem. They were the solution to an older problem. And when I went to California for that week in July, I went hoping that someone was either going to kill me or put me in the hospital where I would somehow have found help someone would have helped me i didn't know it was me needing to reach out for the help so it was that but once I got into the program and started working on myself with other recovering people, I saw the roots of the trauma that were in my life and there was repetitious levels of that. So it needed to be peeled back. It's a, it's a long time. I hope to make solutions for those opportunities for people to get what they deserve in that regard.
0: I feel you certainly are doing that. You're an inspiration to a lot of people, right? You get people kind of motivated and you get them interested in just really doing things differently.
1: Yeah, that's a nice way to say it. (laughs) some people call me exhausting but motivated is what I look to do I don't apologize I come in like raw, you know and and that's who I am because I really don't want to miss any other opportunities of living and I just know what's possible so
0: awesome and you know another good thing that you brought up and I appreciate that you did is you know it's not usually the substance that's the problem right it's usually either someone's way of thinking or like you said uh, events or incidents that have happened to them in the past and to kind of recognize that and to know that can help propel people into the recovery right absolutely
1: And this is also taking statement, I didn't say it, mental health, right? So mental health and trying to navigate additional stigma outside of addiction and self-medicating is kind of sometimes a trap too. And so substance use can come in for different reasons, trauma and wanting to escape that story or those, you know, survived incidences and secrets. And then there can be, you know, a mental health that was created by that or the ways and means to get more if there was a doctor dependency that was dropped and then the addiction was present and you were uneducated.
0: Yeah definitely and you know part of the reason I'm doing this show and a big reason why I brought you in is we got to bring awareness to this right you know a lot of people are going through certain things in their lives and they're unaware of really what's causing certain behaviors and it's important to kind of know this stuff and just how you stop stigma is educating people right bringing it into awareness.
1: Absolutely and And I think that's, it's diverse in its own right too, right? Not the stigma, but how you're able to present the information because it comes in so many different facets and demographics and cultures and age and race and all of that. So a lot of what I saw needing to be addressed was the systemic way of approaching this and really including the family and making sure that the family was learning how to advocate for themselves because the parents, guardians, and loved ones sometimes get well before their loved one does. And that's super important
0: yeah definitely you know I know one of the things that you do is you know target the family target them in the sense of educate them and help them cope right because it's difficult for everyone involved and you know sometimes family members need to know the right way of how to deal with their person who's you know using substances as we know they can say addiction is a family disease so everyone has their role in it, and everyone needs to make changes to help out their person
1: yeah in and, and the right way is what is works for them Right, We're not there to tell them what to do. The peer engagement, they tell each other what's worked for them. And the people making the decision have to go to bed at night with that decision. So we can't tell them what to do. We definitely want them to make an informed decision, though. So that's what's super important about the group and our events and training opportunities that we have.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, in the mental health too, right? You don't force anyone to do anything. You say, here's the information. Here's these techniques. Here's these things that may work. You got to kind of put the tools in your own toolbox, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's you don't have to do it alone. Right. And we can even practice a lot of the time just knowing about the experience about to happen, but not having the experience. If you're just able to practice it once or just have something written down by the phone in case the phone rings or having the resources at hand if that loved one asks. So it's it's just being prepared. More prepared.
0: Definitely, you know, I appreciate that. Being a veteran, I'm always prepared. I got my first aid kit in my car, I got a crank flashlight, and everything. So, this is your version of that, right?
1: <laughs> it is. And I have drug tests in my car. I have Narcan. I have drug disposal bags. I have alcohol strips. We have fentanyl strips. There's different things that we make available too, if needed, not just to catch someone doing something bad but sometimes it's just learning boundaries and catching someone do something right so I want to look to the flip side of it right we have to learn how to have conversations
0: I agree with that we have to have both good and bad conversations about recovery because no one likes to have their negative things focused on it's not really motivating for most people and is it too far saying that your car is like a recovery tank
1: I, I guess so but I will be honest and I know that you're attached military and it's like I don't usually use drugs and in- pair it with war.
0: Well, okay, but it was a compliment, you know. It's
1: really important to me that I look at things that are inspirational in regards to the hope. There are more similarities between us than there are differences. I can honestly say that. So yeah, my my vehicle's prepared. That's what we'll use
0: that. <laughs> so going a little bit off about the more similarities between people than differences, can you talk a little bit about how your lived experience in recovery helps you connect to people who are struggling with their own addiction or substance use?
1: Mhm. Yeah, and I'm taking to consideration the family component as well, and why I was so passionate about bringing it to the organization that um, we're building is because I wonder how it would be different, how my life would have been different, how my parents' lives would have been different and probably their parents before them and how we would have been different in the community, uh, to each other in our relationships if they were just more informed. So when I move forward in my story and how it connects back is I want to serve the community that I grew up in because there was a lot of misunderstanding and there's a lot of what happens in the house stays in the house and there's a lot of predetermined things just because you were who you were in that town. And then my grandparents were amazing. but my ch- My parents were children having children. They didn't know and they had their own way of coping. I don't doubt that at all. I know they cared.
0: For sure. The family piece is definitely an important component. One thing that people appreciate, or at least I'm speaking for myself or people I've worked with is can be that example, right? These are the things that worked for me and look at me, I'm doing it, you know, I'm living it. So people really need that personal kind of touch for a lot of things.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's only a matter of time with talking to someone. And I'm grateful that I am someone I think people have no problem talking to. So it's only a matter of time before they start crossing over the similarities and we'll start to engage, which again, either, and I'm very emotional too. And sometimes that's what provides a sense of permission. And that is another place. And then people want to dive deeper, right? Now they have this outlet for people to, uh, or each other, or even our conversation to go forward with
0: oh yeah it's definitely important to tell people or show people that i'm human you know I have feelings too. I struggle as well. That helps people get bonded and like you said, kind of let their guard down a little bit and start trusting. So Anna, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and we spoke a little bit about this earlier, is you bring up the idea of how important family is into, you know, the recovery process or even the, you know, the addiction process, right? Or the substance use process. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your family was involved in either your recovery or your substance use?
1: Yeah, and it's it's all perspective. So in looking back on it with some more education myself and some work, you know, I've done a lot of work on myself too. So when I look at my family and growing up, I believe we were very fortunate in regards to some of the access to resources that we had. And as I said earlier, my parents were children having children and they were, you know, trying to fulfill the desires of their parents, right? And I think that's what a lot of kids try to do. Well, if the parents, my parents had their own circumstances with addiction it wasn't my job to make them well I'll say it like I it's tough raising parents right so I think I was positioned and the experience for my brother and sister will be very different than what I share and I don't speak for them growing up for me and feeling a responsibility or that's just who I was if it was the birth order and the information that they had as parents or whatever. So addiction, it kind of was prevalent. We grew up in a very socially acceptable or socialite kind of uh, an environment. My grandfather's restaurant was the Yankee silversmith and alcohol was paired with meals and holidays and events were pretty grandiose and alcohol was always around. So in cigarettes, I mean, you could still smoke in hospitals when I was growing up and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So yeah, addiction is really expanded and there's a lot more education. There's so much about, you know, mommy's little helper kind of concept versus now and the dangers of that. It's just, it evolved. And I've really kind of pulled out of the system of family to where I am now in my life. And with no intent of harm, it's, you know, come to a place where I've really had to make peace with my part. And I believe that biology doesn't accept unacceptable behavior. And I really needed to move forward in I think I'm open to the discussion maybe, but I think it's been attempted. So yeah, there's a lot of things that people do because they want approval, right? And I know I had a large hand in that for myself. So I would make a lot of different choices today. You know, if I got another go around with the family, of course, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time with a coulda, woulda, shoulda. I'm going to be amazing because I learned a lot of lessons of what I didn't want to be. One particular mother's day card at the end and this probably sounds cold i remember writing to my mom in a card because i don't think we were talking at that time i hope to be everything you didn't have the courage to be and i was the one with the honor and privilege of taking my mother to treatment i was the one that got to like show her that recovery was possible so i look at that as an honor and privilege
0: Thank you again for getting a little personal, which is really helpful for people relating to the stuff we're talking about. A couple great points that you brought up is, you know, the first thing I would like to say is great boundaries. You know, those boundaries that you described are what people struggle with. And I think boundaries are a big part of either, you know, people struggling with their mental health or addiction. And I give you a lot of credit for being that strong to kind of put those up, especially with family, which is most difficult for a lot of people.
1: Mm hmm. It's not easy though. You question yourself a lot because you you're based off of emotion and fear and things so I can separate well the disease of addiction and the person you love are two different things and that sometimes helps to manage what's present and who you're talking to right I think when you and I had the time together working with groups it was who were you talking to the disease or the person you love are you looking for a rational answer from an irrational person you know all those you just got to start feeling it out and you get better at it can't get worse that's the beautiful thing about learning
0: Definitely. I appreciate you saying that too. Um, Great point that you're making. And the other thing that I thought of is, you know, People who don't really understand addiction can kind of brush it off as like a very simple thing, right? Why doesn't this person stop using or why do they keep using where, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of the things, it's a very complex thing, right? There's a lot more at play than, as you said earlier, just a substance. There's emotion, there's family systems, there's a lot going on.
1: Absolutely. And and that's a whole nother show or two or a series or something. It's a lot, definitely. And there there is. So- a lot of different elements have to be taken into consideration and if you look at it as a disease attributing to a mental health condition with behavioral you know challenges there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to be taken into consideration and that's attached to all of your senses so especially because there's a lot of trauma usually that's involved so there's a lot of physical emotional mental but even hearing smelling tasting touching there's a lot of different things that go
0: deep Yeah, definitely. And like you said, you know, hopefully we can have you back sometime to get more in depth with that stuff. Definitely interesting stuff and great points that you're bringing up. So, you know, changing course a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about Tricircle Incorporated, the agency that you started?
1: Sure. Tricircle, and I dropped the ink, I'm told it sounds too corporate. So I'm going to say Tricircle is amazing. And it's been a challenge too, in the way of the fact that We always say when we start meetings, is how are we going to be different, right? I do not want to be part of the recidivism, nor do I ever want to make money off the backs of the people we say we serve. That's a huge peeve of mine. So, like caseloads and things like that, we don't want them to be like huge amounts just because there's a dollar attached to them. We want to be able to give people the deserving services you know, or the services they deserve. And we want to be able to create connections and warm handoffs and extended care using the system as the way it should be used and not just like, like rotated. I think is the word. Yeah, it's very challenging.
0: Oh, for sure. You know, a lot of my career was working in different agencies, nonprofits, and, you know, there's such a push for productivity. The the individual gets lost in that sometimes. The quality of treatment can also kind of be secondary, and that's a great thing that you're doing.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, And something that gets, you know, usually you come for one thing and you find out all these other great things that you can actually talk about and extend to care for. It's not like a one and done. And, you know, there's there's more to be had and more growth to be given as an opportunity. There are invisible siblings, there are parents and then there are grandparents raising, raising their grandchildren. So there's a lot of different components of the system, too, that have to be taken into consideration.
0: For sure. For sure. Can you tell us a little more about exactly what TriCircle does and what you can offer people?
1: Sure. As we stand right now, because we're always evolving and changing, we have 11 support groups for parents, guardians, and loved ones that have someone in their life affected by the disease of addiction and all the facets of that may be, and folks that have lost a loved one to a substance use disorder. And I thought that to be super important as well, because People talk about treating the whole disease. Well, if someone passes away, there's no less effort or love that's gone into that person to keep them here in this world. So I look at when someone dying from the disease, we want to be able to give them the opportunity and have the services that they need. It's a different group of people, a different kind of peer support, and then building their experiences into our solutions. So we're just working on our second memorial quilt. It's a great conduit for conversations where people can talk about their loved one, and then we keep them alive in that regard. You know, there's a lot of healing components to that and, you know, community.
0: Things like that quilt really add a personal touch, and people need to know that not a statistic right it's a person and who has loved ones that have been affected greatly by their passing
1: yeah i've been known to stand up at different meetings and event kind of things that have epidemiologists and dots on the calendar and numbers and and i will stop literally and say please don't lose the fact that that number and that dot is a person and that person has a family
0: so important to keep in mind and i think that's another thing that helps kind of break down that stigma
1: Mm -hmm. yeah stigma is deep and it's it's stigma or discrimination right because we wouldn't say this about someone that um their sugar went low and they went into diabetic shock you wouldn't hold their symptoms against them or if their cancer came back i mean you'd still make them a casserole right there's just like so many things that this disease is looked at differently but if it really It's really no different. And if there was more compassion and connection to it, then the solution would be present. That's how I see it. That is the solution to this disease is the connection.
0: Definitely. Part of me bringing you on here was to kind of start establishing that connection more or promoting it, I should say. And from co-facilitating groups with you in the past, I know you're a great person to do that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So I did talk about quickly that we have the support groups and those are at no cost to the attendees, even... Each of those meetings has two paid facilitators. Each of those groups has two paid facilitators. And then we now have, starting in this past December 2020, we're able to expand to our clinical opportunities and we have two uh, clinicians on hand. That will also grow further by clinicians and by an outpatient component. And then we'll move forward. So TriCircle is actually a three-phase intention and it has three cycles in the third phase. So it can get complex, not for the show, but it can get a pretty interesting conversation.
0: Well it's great to hear that you know the process is moving forward. I know the last time that we worked together, you know, you're always grinding, right? You're always hustling, but now you, you know you're getting there and I'm sure it feels great and I know it's it's not by accident. It's about a lot of the hard work that you've been putting on and the people that you surround yourself with.
1: Yeah. They and it's no such thing as a coincidence. The people that are sharing the path with me have been nothing but complimentary and motivating and the people that still look at me and wag a finger or say that I can't do something they motivate me even more and they say great advocates are just really pissed off people so (laughs) I'm an excellent advocate
0: I like that I actually haven't heard that statement before but you know it's a great one
1: yeah it's the way that I take I call the art of flipping and I put it into the forward motion where change can happen
0: Can you tell us, do you have any events coming up for Tri-Circle that you want to mention?
1: Yes, probably not going to hit them all, but we always have a lot. We are working um, alongside a couple other organizations. And we just had yesterday one of the quilt making, quilt square making opportunities. We have one more of those on May 1st. Then we have Everyone Knows Someone there's two days that will be happening at the elks in wallingford then we're working with the opioid response network and we will be having a symposium two days that's in september 10th and 17th and we have so i have a list and it's going to be all on the website so i don't want to shortchange anybody but it'll be there september 18th we're looking to have our fourth recovery block party we have an annual meeting we have lots of stuff
0: Lots of amazing things going on. I know you're a busy person, and to be honest, I feel honored you could make time for us today.
1: I appreciate it. I really do. Stronger together. We say we are stronger together.
0: That's right, for sure. Um, Can you tell us how people can get in touch with TriCircle or get more information about it?
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Well, Facebook and our website for one, then our office phone number is 860-349-7074. And if you were to go online to my bio as executive director and founder, you can read a little bit more about my story. And at the very bottom, there's another hyperlink to a story that was called I Am Not Anonymous. And that will give additional insight to my mental health and how I was able to integrate that as well into my conversation and to help remove another layer of stigma that I held so I can be part of the solution. No, I no longer have it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And that's, you know, another important point. You know, there's all this talk about anonymity, right? And recovery and it takes away that personalization, as I mentioned earlier. And I'm glad that, you know, you're comfortable enough with yourself and your process to kind of start breaking down that wall.
1: Yeah. And it is, I, I'm going to repeat it. There's more similarities than differences between us. And I mean like humanity and the differences are just going to make us as a community stronger, right? So if I have four A's and a D on a report card, I don't have to make the D better. I just have to stay strong and get some friends that got an A where the D is, and then we're going to be like rock stars.
0: I like that. I like that. Well, this was great. I really appreciate you coming.
1: Oh, I appreciate being here, definitely, George. And I look forward to seeing you again soon.
0: Yeah, Anna, I really appreciate you joining us. You know, again, it's Anna Gopian from Tricircle. I know we're dropping the incorporated, but, you know, from your card, it says www.tricircleinc.com. And again, thanks for joining us on the show. You were a great guest, and I'm glad that we can kind of put your story out there and get people more in touch with Tricircle. Together we are stronger. That's right. Thanks a lot, Anna okay everyone so now we're gonna get into our coping skill of the day for this episode so for the purpose of this episode today's coping skill is going to be related to our in-depth topic which was social anxiety we're going to get a little more into communication to help people kind of be a little more social knowing better communication skills or strategies or techniques or styles can help improve the relationships that you're currently in Even if you're the most social butterfly out there, this coping skill can still be helpful. So as I said, communication. So Merriam-Webster defines communication as a process by which information is exchanged between individuals through a common system, a system of symbols, signs, or behavior. And a more simpler definition by Merriam-Webster is an exchange of information. So of course we know language is one of the main types of communication that we use, as well as written communication. But actually, nonverbal is a very important part of communication. Now, there's some controversy as far as what percentage of communication is nonverbal. I'm sure you've heard different things. But in doing my research for this segment, I found that it can be anywhere from 50 to 90% of communication. So, for the purpose of this coping skill, we're going to focus on the three main communication types. So those types are passive communication, aggressive communication, and assertive communication. Assertive communication is what we're reaching for here, is what the goal is. It's kind of a mixture of both, but it helps you kind of be a better communicator and express your needs better without stomping all over anyone else's. So we're going to get into a little bit about the characteristics of each type of communication, kind of what the goals are, and then we'll give some examples of how to kind of change your communication style depending on what category you fall into. So let's start with passive communication. So the general kind of features of passive communication are someone puts the needs, wants, and feelings of other people first at the expense of their own self, right? I do for everyone else, I have nothing left for myself, and then I feel like crap. So, you know, a passive communicator typically doesn't stand up for their own rights. They have poor boundaries, which boundaries is a great therapeutic topic, and we're gonna get into that in a later show. A passive communication style can lead people to be taken advantage of, even by well-meaning people because they just don't know what your needs are because you're not expressing them. Passive communicators are usually soft-spoken, you know, talking real quiet and no one can hear them. Huh? What was that? Huh? And they can usually be taken advantage of easily because, like I said, they're not advocating for their self. Other features of passive communication is usually poor eye contact, which eye contact is a cultural thing. I think Americans grill each other and stare each other down a lot, mean mugging, if you will. But some cultures don't, you know, put an emphasis on eye contact. And, you know, passive communicators usually have poor body posture or body posture that doesn't exactly say that, hey, I'm an assertive person, take me seriously. Let's move on to aggressive communication. What did you say? You know, I think we can get the general kind of characteristics of it. Getting more in specific, aggressive communicators usually only care about their own needs and not the needs of everyone else. F the world, F the world. Uh, Aggressive communicators can typically bully or walk all over other people other traits of aggressive communicators are they're easily frustrated they can be very loud and there's no compromise you know it's my way or the highway Reminds me of a song too. This time I'ma let it all come out. This time I'ma stand up and shout. I'ma do things my way. It's my way or the highway. Actually a great running song, but moving on. An aggressive communicator usually criticizes, dominates, and humiliates people in order to get their own needs met. Another uh, common feature of an aggressive communicator is they interrupt frequently and disrespect other people's needs, as I mentioned earlier. Alright, so let's move on to an assertive Communicator, which I said is kind of the goal, what we're shooting for here an assertive communicator usually emphasizes the importance of both their needs and the needs of others they stand up for their own needs feelings and wants but they also respect other people they don't stomp all over people to get what they need an assertive communicator listens effectively really listens to people clearly states their own wants and needs and a key feature of this is their ability to compromise or willingness to compromise they usually have a good tone they have good posture and body language and and, you know usually give eye contact which I said it's a cultural thing this doesn't mean staring people down but when you're talking to someone really looking at them I think during COVID we lost a lot of our facial expressions as far as nonverbal communication so I think the eyes are really important right now eye contact is even more important right now let's give some examples of these three different communication styles here's an example right say a friend wants to borrow your car Which, you know, I wouldn't really give anyone your car. And Judge Judy would agree, but, you know, let's just use it as an example. In your friend borrowing your car, it actually causes a great inconvenience for you. Like, you can't go pick something up or go to work or whatever. So, typically, a passive communicator would be like, um, you know, uh, okay, um, just try not to come back too late tonight. You know, giving up their own needs to make other people happy. An aggressive communicator can be like, what the f is wrong with you? What, how dare you even ask me for my car? What, what's, what are you, an idiot or something? Like, give me a break here. Obviously that's not going to lead to good friendships, but you know, you get the example here. An example of how an assertive communicator would deal with this situation is, I need my car today, so I can't lend it to you today, but I'm willing to drop you off at the location you need to go. Or you can use it another day. You see, the key here is you're standing up for what you need, but not totally xing that person out. And you're offering a compromise, which is important. Sorry, I need it right now, but I can help you out by dropping you off. Or you can borrow it another time. All right, let's get into another example here. So say you're at a restaurant and the server brings you the wrong food. It happens, I think. It happens. A passive communicator will look at the situation like, I'm not that hungry, so it doesn't really matter. Um, And they might try to talk to the server, but if they're busy or they're doing something else, they'll just stop. Uh, Excuse me. uh, Never mind. Never mind. So an aggressive communicator, again, kind of a jerk, right? What the hell is wrong with you? Why would you give me the wrong food? Aren't you paying attention? What are you, an idiot? Like, get it together or something like that. The people in the kitchen hearing that are probably going to do something shady to your food. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm referencing that movie Waiting, if anyone has seen it, geez. An assertive communicator can be like, excuse me. I know you're busy right now, but you did bring me the wrong food. Do you think you can go to the kitchen and have them make the right meal? that's expressing yourself being clear about what your needs and wants are but not being a jerk about it most likely you'll get the right food brought to you so let's get into one more example right now so say that you're living with a roommate and they leave the kitchen really messy right so a passive communicator might start to bring up the topic but kind of get brushed off by the roommate and then just go clean the kitchen themselves right an aggressive communicator can start flipping out and swearing and yelling and knocking things off the counter well that's more than just aggressive communicator that's just an aggressive person but again that's your roommate so it's not going to lead to a lovely calm household so an assertive communicator can sit down with the roommate at the right time and be like listen we need to kind of divvy up the chores here I'm working on this the kitchen was really a mess and I needed to make something and I had to clean this up can we try to work together a little bit better to help each other out and that can get your needs met in a kind way A compromise in that situation could be something like, it doesn't appear that the kitchen is your favorite thing to do. How about we switch chores and you take the trash out or clean the living room or whatever. These are just quick examples of different communication styles. So we went over the definition of communication. We talked about the three main types of communication, passive, aggressive, and assertive, which is the goal. We went over the features and characteristics of each of those three, and we gave some examples of how you can change your communication styles based on where you fall into those categories. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to this segment. I just want to say that this segment is sponsored by Charter Oak Therapeutic Services, a private practice that I'm the co-owner of and a clinician at. Charter Oak is located in Woolkit, Connecticut, and you can contact them at 860-863-6342 or emailing hello at Myself, George, is currently accepting clients, and I take most insurances, and so is my business partner, Rosalie, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist who does have immediate openings right now. We can offer both telehealth and in-person sessions, but usually just to make the process easier, the first appointment has to be in person. So check out our website, www.charteroaktherapy.com, Look at our Psychology Today page or call 860-863-6342 or securely email us at hello at charteroaktherapy.com. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone. That's actually going to wrap up the sixth episode of the Tough Get Going podcast. I'm George Gogas, and I appreciate everyone tuning into the show. So just a couple notes before we end for today. The first one is the Tough Get Going podcast is not intended to treat mental health issues. It's intended to offer tips and suggestions, interesting interviews, fun facts, and dry humor. If you're struggling with your mental health, you can Google psychology today or just therapists near me. If this is a mental health emergency, call 911, go to your local emergency room, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Another note is the Tough Get Going podcast is now on Instagram. So check us out and follow our page for cool quotes, badass pictures, more fun facts, and show updates, including release times. Also, this episode is sponsored by Charter Oak Therapeutic Services, a private practice that I'm an owner at and clinician. Charter Oak is now accepting clients, so if you're interested in working with me or my business partner, Rosalie, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, call 860-863-6342 or email hello at charteroaktherapy.com. All right, everyone. I appreciate everyone tuning in for today's episode. I hope this was somewhat helpful for you. As Anna said earlier, together we are stronger, so I appreciate everyone tuning in. We have plenty more episodes on the way. So everyone out there in the world, take care of yourself, be careful, but most of all, stay tough. Now let's get going.